Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of Genesis. Easy to find. It's the first book of your Bible. Turn to page 38 if you want to use one of the Bibles that you can find underneath a chair nearby. Page 38. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Hear God's word. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he had made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. The word of the Lord. trailer is to introduce our new series that starts today. This morning we're beginning a new series of studies in the book of Genesis and it's called From Prison to Palace, The Story of Joseph. A couple of reasons why. Well, for one thing, we haven't been in the Old Testament for a long time and I love the Old Testament so it's time to go back to it. Second reason is that in June we're all going to participate in one way or another in Vacation Bible School. It's uh, going to be the latter part of June. Some of you have already registered to volunteer for that. 
there's a little sign-up slip in the, bo- in the uh, worship guide this morning where you can volunteer for VBS to help out a little bit if you haven't yet. But uh, the whole church family is going to participate in some way that week in Vacation Bible School. It's going to be about Joseph. It's going to be about the story of Joseph. So I figured, why don't we begin to study the life of Joseph together as a church family between now and then? So this is going to be an eight-week study of Joseph beginning today. So keep your place there in Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look at the first 11 verses, and also I'm going to refer to the rest of the chapter as we go through this morning. Um, I used to live in St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I went to seminary, and my wife and I lived up there for about seven years um, while there, one of my friends in the church worked for McDonnell Douglas. There is no McDonnell Douglas anymore. They merged with Boeing back in, uh, I think, in 1997. But uh, I was able to go on a tour of the McDonnell Douglas factory there, the plant at Lambert Airport in St. Louis. It was fascinating. At that time, McDonnell Douglas was uh, producing military and commercial aircraft. And to watch these things being built on the assembly line, to see the airplanes taking shape, the jets, the the aircraft that were going to be used in wartime, and so on, was absolutely amazing. I love factories. I love the idea of taking something from, you know, blueprint to actual object, whether it be a car or food or whatever it might happen to be. So it was a great, great tour of that factory. Do you realize that in every heart there is a factory? There's something being produced in your heart all the time. John Calvin talked about this. He said, the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert in inventing idols. You ever thought about that? You know, when I say the word idol, you might hear all kinds of concepts that we need to correct. Like when you hear the word idol, are you thinking of American Idol, the popular TV series? Are you thinking about a movie or a music idol, some Hollywood celebrity perhaps, maybe maybe uh, the stars of the Twilight Saga or Justin Bieber, God forbid, or something like that? Um, or perhaps you're thinking of idols that are made out of stone, you know, the common image of an idol, a stone or a wood object that some of our archaeologists dig up at some ancient site. Well, Ken Sandy of Peacemaker Ministries said this, an idol is not simply a statue of wood, stone, or metal. It is anything that we love and pursue in place of God. He goes on to say, it's something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us, or that we serve. That's what an idol is. Maybe you've never considered that your heart is a factory of idols. In other words, an idol is any person or thing that becomes a working substitute for God. It could be an object like a golden calf in the Bible time, or a TV, or a garden. It could be a friend or a family member. It could be an activity, a sport, an institution, a favorite place, 
perhaps. A hope, an image on a computer screen. It could be an idea or a pleasure, a hero, a cause. It could be a job. It could be a beer. It could be a joint. The list goes on and on. In fact, an idol is anything on which you rely and to which you look to do for you what only God can do, which is namely to give you purpose and redemption and justification. Sometimes an idol is a good thing that you simply over-attach yourself to. Take work, for example. Work is a good thing. It's commanded to us to do. It can be very, very redemptive, work can be. But if it's pursued so exclusively that you neglect, say, your family, well, it's an idol. Sometimes an idol is an attitude that you subscribe to in order to build security or significance into your life. For instance, law-keeping can be an idol. Support for health reform can be an idol. So can opposition to health reform. Health itself can be an idol. Cultures have idols. What do you suppose is one of the major idolatries of our city? I thought about it for a little while and I came up with suburban narcissism. I think suburban narcissism is a very dear idol to East Orlando. You know, I'm talking about the good life, having enough money, having enough sound investments, having a couple of talented kids, a dog, a couple of cars in the garage, a little water out back. At least you could see a little pond from your back French door, being free on weekends, being skinny, being fit. I think I've just described East Orlando. And for many, it's idolatry. Churches have idols. It might be their preacher, please no. (laughs) It could be their theology, their building, their impact on the community, their missions budget, their history, their coolness, their commitment to tradition. A lot of churches have idols. You get the picture. To quote the title of Tim Keller's recent book, Idols Are Counterfeit Gods. And our hearts are factories of them. Well, last week I talked a little bit about idolatry. If you were here, showed you a diagram, talked a little bit about it then. I want to take it a few steps further this morning. Because idolatry is one of the most important concepts for God's people to get hold of, to understand, and to repent of. What I want to do today is talk to you about three things regarding idolatry. First, the many faces of idolatry as we see it here in Genesis 37. Secondly, the causes of idolatry. And finally, the cure of idolatry. So let's begin with the many faces of idolatry as we meet up with it here in Genesis 37. You can see at least three idols in this story that I read earlier about Joseph and his family. So let me show you what I see as idolatries in this particular story. First, there's the family idol. Do you realize that family can become your idol? Your husband, your wife, mom, dad, kids, your family background, your family tree, things about your family that make you unique, all of that can become an idol for you. Let's think for a moment about 
Jacob and Josh, uh, Joseph's family tree. It's here on the screen. I don't know how well you can see this. I tried to put it up on one, on one slide. But up at the top, you notice you got Abraham, who married Sarah. Abraham is our patriarch, right? He is the, the most famous figure of Genesis 12 through about 22. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who, as you see, married a woman named Rebekah. And together, Isaac and Rebekah had these two children, Esau and Jacob. Now, we're going to leave Esau aside because Jacob is the one who concerns us most this morning. And so you see on the slide that Jacob had these four wives. Uh, Leah and Rachel were sisters. And Jacob, if you know the story, had to work for 14 years for his uncle Laban to get these two wives. And that's a whole other story in itself. We won't get into all that. But also, Jacob had two uh, concubines. They were the maidservants of Leah and Rachel. And their names were Bilhah and Zilpah. I doubt anybody here is going to name your children Bilhah or Zilpah. But anyway. Okay, so together, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah had these 12 sons that you see listed across the bottom there. These 12 became the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel. It makes for fascinating reading as you go through the Old Testament. And um, right about in the middle of that long line of children is the figure that concerns us this morning, Joseph. We're going to be talking together about... Oh, thank you. See the arrow. (laughs) That was clever. Thanks a lot. We're going to be talking about Joseph, and you notice that eventually we will find out that Joseph had these two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. That gives you a little sense of the family background of Joseph and of Jacob, his father. Now, what I want you to realize is that Joseph there was the firstborn son that Jacob had with Rachel. You see that? Rachel just had these two sons, Joseph and Benjamin, And Joseph was the older of the two. Interesting fact, you can find this out in chapter 29. You'd have to go backwards. Interesting thing about this is that we're told in the Bible that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. So Jacob already had a favorite wife. Now, guys, for one thing, don't marry more than one woman at a time. Polygamy is not good. It's a sin. But certainly don't have a favorite wife. That was a big mistake. That got Jacob in a lot of trouble. But notice the pattern. Here, we're talking about family idolatry, right? Notice the pattern. Not only did Jacob have a favorite wife, but our story this morning tells us that he had a favorite son. Now, Mom, it's Mother's Day. Some of you women may be a mom one day. Don't have a favorite child. That's not good. He had a favorite son, and that was Joseph. Look at verse 3 of our text, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And I wonder too, as I thought about this, I wonder if another reason that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of his other sons is that Rachel died while giving birth to Benjamin. 
And so Joseph was a boy. I don't know how old he was, perhaps four, five, six. Joseph was a boy when he lost his mom. I wonder if that suddenly skewed things for Jacob, his father. And he began to indulge and over-attach himself to this son, Joseph, who knew his mom well, lost her at an early age. Verse 3 goes on to say that Jacob made a richly ornamented robe for Joseph. And when his, fa- when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, it says in verse 3 that they hated Joseph and couldn't speak a kind word to him. Now, frankly, I can understand that, can't you? Here's this favored son. Everybody in the family knows that it's all about Joseph. Nobody else got this finely ornamented robe. Only Joseph did. I suspect that Jacob spent weeks or months sewing this amazing technicolor dream coat for Joseph. Actually, I need to correct something that we have in our minds. We usually call this a multicolored or a coat of many colors. The uh, older versions say that, that it was a coat of many colors, but it's more likely that the Hebrew language here means that it was a coat of extended length that stretched all the way down to his hands and all the way down to his feet as well. It was perhaps a long-sleeved white garment. A lot of scholars don't think it was of many colors, but it was a white garment that was worn by young men of royalty. And so if that be the case, you can really understand why it was so terribly offensive to Joseph's brothers. So what do you suppose that his son Joseph represented for Jacob? What was it that Joseph symbolized for his father Jacob? Why did he love him the most? Well, there's a clue actually back in chapter 25 verse 28. It says in that verse that Isaac, and you remember Isaac was Jacob's father... It says, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So that means that Jacob was a mama's boy. Isaac preferred Esau because Esau was more athletic. He loved the outdoors, while Rebekah favored Jacob. What effect do you think that his father's rejection had upon Jacob? We can only guess. But when a young man grows up knowing that his father favored his brother over him, when a young man grows up feeling his father's rejection, what does that spell? It spells disaster. Whatever the case, this insecurity, this rejection that Jacob experienced growing up seems to have worked itself out into his parenting. And now he lavishes his love upon one of his youngest children, namely Joseph. Family idolatry. Without question, one of the common idolatries of parents is their children. You might indulge them, you might overprotect them, you might fail to discipline or challenge them adequately, or on the other hand, you might discipline them too harshly. You might expect too much of them and push them. Some parents push their kids too hard, too soon. Many parents live their lives through their kids. They spend too much money on them or they get them involved in so many activities that family life suffers, church life suffers, religious training suffers. These are just a few examples of family idolatry. Let's move on to a second face of idolatry. We've seen family. The second one that we see in this story is entitlement. 
Entitlement is an idol for a lot of people. And we see that particularly in Joseph. I believe that Joseph's idol was a feeling of entitlement. Verses 5 through 11 that I read earlier talk about Joseph's two dreams. Let's go back and review them. Dream number one is in verses 6 and 7. It says that Joseph said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Dream two is in verse 9. It says, then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said to them, I had another dream and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now, if you had a dream like that, would you go around telling everybody about it? What would that make you look like? You would look like an absolute arrogant you-know-what. But that's exactly what Joseph did. Notice what happened after Joseph started going around sharing these dreams with everybody. Verse 5 says that they hated him all the more. Verse 8, they hated him all the more. Verse 10, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? And verse 11 says that his brothers were jealous of him. And if you know the rest of chapter 37, you know what happened. You know that soon this jealousy led to the brothers plotting a way to get rid of Joseph once and for all. At first they were going to kill him, but then the oldest son, Reuben, interceded for him and said, no, let's don't kill him, let's throw him in this cistern. So they stripped him of that amazing technicolor dream coat and threw him in this cistern and eventually he was sold to Egypt as a slave to Potiphar, whom you're going to meet next week. They dipped Joseph's coat in the blood of goats and took it back to their father Jacob. And Jacob mourned the death, the supposed death of his son. He figured Joseph had been killed by a lion or by a bear. But here's my point here. Joseph brought all this upon himself by his love of preeminence. That's why I say he had an idol of entitlement. He figured, well, I got this coat I got my father's love. I'm the favored son. I'm just going to go around and tell everybody about it and make myself the center of attention. What about you? Is there something you think you're entitled to? Something you think you just deserve? Do you think your race, your age, your position in the church, your money, your skills or something like that require that others kowtow to you? There's a, there's a little-known character in the New Testament by the name of Diotrephes. We could play a little Bible trivia here. Has anybody ever heard of Diotrephes? He's in that little book called 3 John. I've never preached a sermon on 3 John. But Diotrephes is mentioned in 3 John, and it says about him that he loved to be first. Can you relate? Do you love to be first? Do you love to be noticed? Do you love to be thanked? Do you love to be defended? Do you crave attention, approval, applause, recognition? Or or can you be content with second place, fifth place, twelfth place? Can you put up with being forgotten, unfairly treated? Last in line? Entitlement. 
third idol that we see in this chapter, very briefly, is power. There's a power or control idol going on in Genesis 37. And I'm talking about the brothers now. We've seen Jacob's idol was family. We've seen Joseph's idol was entitlement. The brothers of Joseph seem to have a power idol going on because they thought that by physical force they could get rid of Joseph and make things easier for themselves. Notice what they say to Joseph there in verse 8. In verse 8 they say, Joseph, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? See, those with power idols cannot stand being ruled. They can't stand being told what to do. They must have their way. The very idea of bowing down before their younger brother was unthinkable. They had to be in control, they thought. They had to exercise authority. So they plotted and schemed a way to put themselves back on top. You know what's... I I hate to give it away. This is sort of a spoiler. But I think it's so neat and so ironic that little did these brothers know that their plan to sell Joseph to the Midianite merchants would actually lead to the fulfillment of the very dreams that they hated. But I'm giving it away, so just hold on because in the next few weeks you're going to see what I'm talking about. But I I just want you to know right now that idolatry is a heinous sin. The first and second commandments out of the ten deal with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything on... uh, on the earth or in the heavens above or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I will not give my favor to another. I will not relinquish my godly, my godness to anything or anyone. See, God tolerates no rivals. You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and harbor an idol in your heart at the same time. Your affection must go one place or another, not both. Let's talk about our, the uh, causes of idolatry. We've seen these many faces and there are many more, but those are just three in this chapter. What are the causes of idolatry? Two things, two reasons why we worship idols. First reason is that we are innately religious creatures. We're innately religious. G.K. Chesterton said that when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing, we worship anything. See, the human being must worship something. And if it's not God, it won't be nothing, it'll be something or someone We were created for relationship with God. And when we lost that in the Garden of Eden, our affections go all over the place. But they must latch onto something that gives us a sense of transcendence, a sense that life is worth living, a sense that we're significant. And if God is not the one to do that, it is something, and we call that an idol. I love what someone I heard said one time. They said, if God is not glorious, something else will be. Say that again. If God is not glorious, something else will be. The second reason that our hearts are idle factories is not only are we innately religious beings, but, and this is the flip side of that, we have a deep aversion to the true and living God. This is part of what makes us sinners. 
I said one time to a group of children up here, we're allergic to God naturally. When we're born into this world, we're conceived in sin and we have this natural aversion to God. So we're in a bit of a quandary, aren't we? See, even though there's this innate yearning for God that maybe we don't know what that is, but it's a yearning for God. At the same time, we don't want to face the God of the Bible. We need to avoid him because he's too holy and we're too sinful. So what do we do? Well, rather than deny God altogether and throw religion out the window, we create a substitute God and we think that this God will give us what we want from the God, the true God, while keeping us in the center of things. We see this played out right here in this story. Everybody in today's story had a yearning for God in his heart, but because of their aversion to God, they didn't trust in him. They trusted in a counterfeit God. Jacob, for example, go back. You remember we said Jacob had a family idol going on? He longed for affirmation. Remember I said that his father loved his brother more than him? So he had this emptiness for significance, this sense of being wanted. Well, did he look to God for that? No. He invested himself in his son Joseph, thinking, if I can only help my son Joseph be a success, I'll make him this coat. Maybe that will give me what I've been missing all these years. I said that Joseph had this uh, entitlement idol going on, right? He longed for significance, but did he look to God for that? No. Instead, he put his hope in his richly ornamented robe and going around boasting about his dreams and telling other people to bow down to him. And the, and the brothers, you remember, they, they longed for power and they longed for control. So did they turn to God for security? Did they look to him to be their rock on which to stand? No, they took matters into their own hands and violated their own brother. Do you see how these two things play out? We need God desperately, but we also desperately want to go the other direction. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Wise words. What is the cure for idolatry? We've seen its many faces. We've seen its causes. What's the cure? In a word, the cure for idolatry is repentance. We talked about that last week a little while. The cure for idolatry is repentance. What does that look like? How do you repent? I want to leave you with four parts of repentance. The first thing we have to do to repent is to identify our idols. While we've been sitting here this morning, while I've been talking, have you been trying to identify your idols? Don't worry about somebody else's idols. Worry about yours. I want to give you 15 questions to ask yourself. Maybe these will help. Maybe as I read down through this list, you will see one or two of them that you'd like to write down and go home and ask yourself often. I, I adapted this, by the way, from something that David Paulison did and wrote. Let me share these 15 questions. First, what do you love and what do you hate? What do you aim for or pursue? What do you expect 
What do you crave or wish for or want? And I like this one. What do you not want? It's a good question to ask. What do I not want? What do you worry about? What do you think you need? Where do you go to find refuge or escape or safety or comfort? What or whom do you trust? Whom must you please? That's good for us approval addicts. What do you fear? What are you afraid of? Whom do you fear to displease or to disappoint? From whom do you want approval? And finally, from whom do you fear rejection? I think those are great questions because they really uncover some of the deeper desires of your heart. And many of us will go to an idol for these things instead of, instead of to God. First is identify your idols. That's the first step of repentance. And the second step is to realize that your idols are going to disappoint you. No matter what is your idol, whether it be family or entitlement or power or money, success, beauty, being skinny, whatever your idol might happen to be, it's going to let you down. Did you notice that in every case in our story today, the idols of Jacob and Joseph and the brothers didn't work? Jacob's idol was family. What happened? Well, his family fell apart. And Jacob wouldn't even see Joseph, his son, for at least 20 more years. Joseph's idol was entitlement. Did that work for him? No, because he ended up being a slave in Egypt. The brother's idol was power. Did that work for him, for them? No. In just a few weeks, you're going to see that Joseph's dreams actually came true. Joseph's brothers did bow down to him. He was exalted, and they would bow to him just like they said they would. Third step of, uh, of repentance. Identify your idols. Remember, they'll disappoint you. Thirdly, destroy your idols day after day. Destroy them. Don't be nice to them. Don't be patient with them. Don't be kind to them. Don't indulge them. Don't like them. Destroy them. And finally, trust in Jesus only. Trust in Jesus only for your sense of significance, for your power and control. Trust in Jesus only for your ability to get up in the morning and go on another day. Trust in Jesus alone Why? Why should you trust Jesus? Going back to that richly ornamented robe. Has Jesus given you a richly ornamented robe? Absolutely. In fact, every kid in his family is his favored son or daughter. Every one of us. And every one of us, Jesus has given a robe. It's called a robe of righteousness. It covers you from not just down to your hands and feet. It covers you from head to toe. When God looks at you, you know what he sees? He sees Jesus if you're trusting in Christ. God loves you like he loves his son. He said about Jesus, I'm well pleased with you. He says about you, I'm well pleased with you. So what more could an idol do for you than God has already done? Let's pray. Father, When are you ever going to be enough for us? When are you ever going to be enough for me? 
Why do I keep believing that Jesus plus something equals satisfaction? Forgive our idolatry, Lord. Would you help us to identify our idols and remember that they're always going to let us down? Would you give us a sense of urgency to run away from our idols and put them to death in our lives? To dethrone them and enthrone you in our hearts? And Jesus, I pray that you will help us at UPC to go back again and again and again to the cross and see that you have given us the only robe we need the robe of your beautiful righteousness. Help us to remember that if you're not glorious, something else is going to be. And Lord, we want you to be glorious. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's time to respond to our God's grace in our lives with